Hi, this is Nathan. My passion is to provide Christ-centered Bible teaching and resources that glorifies God and will encourage and equip you to grow spiritually and live a Christ-centered life. If you would like more resources to help you understand the Word of God and cultivate a passionate love for Jesus that turns the world upside down, please visit deeperchristian.com. Now, grab your Bible as we dive into this message from God's Word. And last, I think it was last fall, we we're starting to study Philippians chapter 4, and we were talking about the Christian mindset, and, and we have 12 studies uh, that we have started, and we're, God willing, going to finish uh, the passage uh, over the course of these next uh, seven weeks or so. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 4, and uh, we've been walking through verses 4 down through verse 9, and uh, just to kind of give some quick background, the, the reason I even got into this passage <clears throat> is partly just because of all the joyful craziness of this last year. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what it was like in your life, and I don't know what you were dealing with, uh, but as I was just looking at the culture, and I was looking at the COVID stuff, and I was looking at just the, the economics and the political stuff, and we have been through a lot of craziness. And I don't, craziness is the only word I can come up with. It was, it's been crazy. And it was in the middle of the whole COVID season that, that I was just kind of personally just saying, okay, Lord, as a Christian, what is the mindset, what is the thought process of a Christian supposed to be in the middle of this? Now, I know these have not been the worst times ever in human history. There have been far, far greater issues. <laughs> been far greater issues. Like real plagues. You know, those kind of things. But since we're going through difficulty in the modern day, how, how is a Christian supposed to think? How are we supposed to function? What are we supposed to do as a Christian? And so I was just beginning to study the Word, and, and I love the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians uh, has several key themes, but one of the major themes in the book of Philippians is the mind. It's a mindset book. It's, it's all about the mind. Hey, have this mind. Uh, you turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Hey, have this mind of Christ. That there's this, this orientation of living that we're supposed to have. In fact, verses 1 through 4, Paul says that as believers, we are to be like-minded. In other words, we are to have one focus. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't have personality. Uh, you can like your flavor of pizza. In other words, we're not becoming uh, duplicates of each other. Uh, that God, hey, we're all distinct. God had made us individuals. And yet, even as individuals, as the body of Christ, we have one drive, one focus, one mind, which is supposed to be Jesus. And so as I was just beginning to study through all this, I came to Philippians chapter 4, which is the think on these things passage. Uh, which you probably know very well. And so I just began to study verses 4 down through verse 9, saying, okay, in this day, in this hour, which is true for any day and any hour, what are we supposed to think? What are we supposed to set our minds on? What are, where is the affections of our heart supposed to be, no matter what is going on around us? Uh, so what I'm going to do uh, over this particular episode and then also on Thursday is I'm going to give a review of what we've gone through in verses 4 down through verse 7. And if you want to flesh these out in more detail, you can go back and re-listen to the old series. And we have 12 studies uh, breaking this down in a little bit more detail. But I just want to give a kind of an overview uh, of these verses in these first two episodes. And then I want to focus the majority of our time over these next few weeks looking at verse 8, which is the specific think on these things uh, verses. 
So if you have your Bibles, I want to just read uh, verses 4 down through verse 9 just so it's fresh in our mind and just so we have the context and just so that we begin to live in this passage. So this is what Paul is saying, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all people. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. As for the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Oh, what an incredible passage. He starts in verse 4 and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Do you know what the word always in Greek means? Always. Isn't that profound? There should never be a moment in our lives where we are not rejoicing. That there should be this constant undercurrent of your life, which is all about this rejoicing idea. In fact, this is so strong in the passage that Paul turns around and he says, not only rejoice in the Lord always, he says, again, I will tell you, rejoice. So this is really strong in the passage. You can't wiggle out of this one. You can't say, well, uh, Paul, you don't understand my circumstances. Hey, you don't understand my family. Paul, you've never seen my finances. Paul, I don't think you know what you're talking about in terms of my life. And do you know what Paul would look at you and say? Paul would say, you don't know what you're talking about. Do you know where Paul is writing the book of Philippians? From a dark, dank prison cell uh, scholars presume he's likely in Rome. He's in a prison cell. And here he is. He's writing this commission to those in Philippi. And he says, hey, look, I understand you're in persecution. I understand there's difficulty. But hey, rejoice. Well, Paul, I don't know if you know what you're talking about. Well, I am in a prison cell. Hey, you want to look at my back? Have you ever thought about what ba uh, Paul's back must have looked like? Uh, Paul was beaten with a cat of nine tails multiple times, like, you know, the 40 lashes minus one. And the whole 40 minus lashes one thing. If you saw the passion of the Christ, you understand how brutal this is. The idea is you have this cat of nine tails, it's, you know, some leather, and at the end you have bone and rock and glass, whatever you could find that's, you know, sharp. And then you take someone's back and you take the thing and just whoosh. The goal is to rip as much flesh out as possible. And you do that 39 times, one after another after another. And the idea, according to the Romans, was that if you were hit 40 times, you would die. And so they would bring you all the way up to the verge of death and then stop. Paul says, that happened to me multiple times. So there probably isn't much of a back left on Paul. He says, hey, I was beaten with rods. I was stoned. Which means we don't pick up little pebbles and huck them at you. We're picking up rocks and we're aiming for your head. We are trying to crush your skull. In fact, the passage in Acts even seems to indicate that Paul probably died. And they were taken out. And then Jesus just poof, popped him back up and he just walked back in. Which would have been awesome. <laughs> Do you realize that Paul, when, when you look at his list in Corinthians of all the stuff that he went through. And I was, you know, a, a night, day, and in a deep, and of famine often, and, 
you know, toils here and toils there and toils everywhere. I mean, he's just, he's talking about all that he went through. Paul knew how to suffer. And so here he is in likely a Roman prison cell, and he's looking at those in Philippi saying, hey, rejoice! Yeah, but Paul, I'm, I'm going through difficulty. He goes, that's the whole reason you should be rejoicing. Isn't it interesting that when, when things are difficult, when things are hard, hey, when you're falsely accused, what you want to do is just kind of crumble. Your knees grow weak. You want to kind of go in a fetal position. You want to start sucking your thumb, right? I mean, you're just, you, you, you want to close up. You want to get smaller. You just want to hide. Leaping, the word leaping, this idea of joy, it's really fascinating. The undercurrent of the word joy in Scripture has this idea of leaping associated with it, which, which we're going to flesh out more in this semester. But there's this idea of joy, this, this leaping that, that's taking place. That when the world is pushing you down, that there is this buoyancy, there's this pressing upward in your soul. Uh, the illustration we've often given around here is this idea of a trampoline. Uh, if you ever bounce on a trampoline, it's amazing. The more pressure you put down upon the trampoline, the higher you get to go. So what if you would take all, all the stuff that the world throws at you and all the pressures and all the turmoils and, and all the circumstances and, and all that craziness that's trying to push you down, what if you would allow the, the midst of that pressure and the pressing of down to cause you to jump higher in Jesus? That's this idea. And by the way, do you know where our joy is found as believers? You'll never guess. Okay, I'll give you one guess. Yeah, our joy is found in Jesus, folks. If you, if you look at Psalm 1611, there's this beautiful declaration that in God is the fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you realize that he is the fullness of joy? And as a culture, we are going to a hundred thousand other things trying to find happiness and joy and in entertainment, in sports, in relationships, in drugs, and you just go down through your list. And we're, we're searching for joy. We're, we're just searching for happiness. We're just searching for something to satisfy. And yet that which satisfied is found only in one place. It's him. Because he is the fullness of our joy. So what would it look like in the middle of your circumstance, in the middle of your situation, to grab a hold of the reality of Jesus Christ and say, oh, Lord, I'm going to rejoice in you. Now, isn't it interesting? The rejoicing is not based on your circumstance. This is not based on what's going on around you. This is not based on, on your family. This is not based upon your bank account. This is not based upon anything that you're actually dealing with. This is a command in every situation, in every circumstance for you to experience, to declare, to determine, to choose to rejoice. And you do realize that joy is different than happiness. Uh, happiness is an emotion. Oh, I just got a pay raise. Woo, I'm happy. Dog just died. Oh, I'm not so happy. Right? That's not this idea. See, this idea is a determination of the soul that regardless of circumstance, I am going to rejoice because I'm rejoicing in the one who is the fullness of joy. What if you live that way? I mean, could you imagine coming into every situation and every circumstance and every problem and you look at your family and your finances and you just begin to say, Lord, I trust you and, and I, I don't feel like it right now and I, I feel my knees growing weak and I, I feel myself just growing exhausted, but, but Lord, I, I, am, I am choosing in you to, to find my buoyancy of soul and I, I'm, I'm going upwards when the world is trying to press me down and Lord, I'm just, oh, I'm, 
And you may feel the joy at times, you may not feel the joy at times, but you are called to rejoice at all times. That's really strong in the passage. So Paul, again, in verse 4, says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And then he comes into verse 5, and he says, Hey, let your gentleness be known to all people. I don't, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word gentleness. Uh, some translations say reasonableness. Uh, some say gentle spirit. Uh, this particular word for gentleness, scholars say, is one of the hardest Greek words to translate. And when you start looking at all the ways it's translated, there's, there's like 10 different ways this word is translated. It is an awkward word to deal with. <clears throat> uh, we know that the uh, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, right? We, hey, that's on the list. That's not this word. Uh, the word gentleness that's used in the fruit of the Spirit is this idea of an opposite spirit. Uh, so someone comes up to you and spits in your face, what do you do? Not that. You become gentle. You do something opposite. Someone comes and smacks you, and all you want to do is smack them back. What do you do? You speak kind words. Does that make sense? It's, it's, an, it's an opposite way of living. <clears throat> this word, this, this idea of gentleness is a different word. Interestingly, both the words, the one that's in the fruit of the Spirit and this particular word, uh, is used in terms of Jesus. In fact, Paul uses it in the same passage to talk about Jesus, that he is both of these things. <clears throat> but this word, for th- this idea of gentleness, this idea is more of the idea of you look over an offense and give mercy and love. Uh, someone comes up to you and they, they offend you. They come up to you and they hurt you. They come up to you and they do something. And you legally could demand your rights. I mean, hey, you, you, you can demand justice. Hey you, hey, you can just, hey, you can... But rather than demand your rights and demand the justice that you rightly deserve, this word is the idea of you look past the offense and you actually see the need of the individual. And you say, you know what? What you actually need is not me demanding my justice and my rights. What you need is mercy and grace. And so I'm going to show love to you. That's this word. Do you realize that's what God has done in our lives. See, I, I have lived in rebellion. I have lived in sin. I have shaken my fist in God's face. And God, by all rights and legality, can demand justice and send me to hell for eternity. That's what I deserve. But isn't it interesting that God did not demand the justice? What did he do? He looked past the offense. He looked past the sin. He doesn't excuse sin. Please understand that. But he looked past it and saw the need of my life and said, oh, I just, I have such a love and a passion and concern for you that rather than demand my rights, I'm going to look past that and just give you what you need. And so I'm going to extend mercy and grace and forgiveness and love to you so that oh, there could be restoration and health and life in you. Does that make sense? And so he deals with the sin so that he can deal with the individual. That's beautiful. Could you imagine what that would look like in marriages? I mean, could you imagine a husband and a wife that 
that look at each other and say, I'm not going to demand my rights. Hey, I'm not going to demand my justice. Hey, I'm not going to demand, hey, you need to do this for me because I've done this for you. See, what, what if there was none of that in marriage? What if as a spouse, you look beyond anything your spouse did and said, oh, there's such a love and a concern and a mercy for you that I'm going to look past the offense. I'm willing to look past the hurt. I'm willing to look past that sharp word that you just gave me. And I'm going to look at you and extend mercy and love and kindness to you because, wow, there's just, I'm more concerned about you than I am about the offense that you just caused. And so rather than demand the justice that I could demand, rather than demand my, hey, my own rights, hey, rather than to, what would that look like in our churches? See, see what would that look like in our families? See, what, what would that look like in our world today if we as Christians were not demanding our rights and we weren't demanding our justice and we weren't, hey, we should expect the world's gonna hurt us. Hey, we, we should expect the world's gonna put persecution. Hey, we should expect that there's gonna be pressure upon the world and rather than demand the rights that we, hey, we have rights, hey, we, hey, justice, what if we would look past all that and say, oh, you need Jesus. Hey, you, you just, you desperately need Jesus. So what am I going to do? Hey, I, I, I'm not going to sue you. Hey, I'm not going to take your coat. I'm just going to, I'm going to instead give you mercy and love. I'm going to show you gentleness. And again, gentleness may not be the best word for, to translate this, but, but that's this idea. Did you know that Paul says that that idea is to be known to everybody in your life. He says, let your gentleness be known to everyone around you. Is that true in you? Hey, when, when the world looks upon your life, do they just go, wow. They just, they just seem like they're always pouring out. They just, wow, it just seems like they're always extending mercy and love. Wow, it just seems like they're always going out of the way to serve and bless and encourage. And, and they're not demanding their rights. And they're not saying, hey, it's all about position. And see, it's not about titles. And it's not about, see, it's, it's all about the other people around them. It's not about themselves. By the way, do you know what we call people who live like this? I think we'd have to call them Christians, wouldn't we? And wouldn't it be fascinating if, if you got out of your own life and, and out of the self-focus and, and the me, 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 me kind of stuff, and, and instead of saying, well, how does this, this affect me? And how, hey, how, how's this going to hurt me? And, and what is this going to do to me? And, and what about, <clears throat> what if this wasn't about you at all? What if this was about him? And what if he wanted to show his life in and through you? And so when someone comes into your life, this isn't about you and guarding and protecting and, and, and declare your titles and, and, hey, how are you going to serve me and what are you going to do for me? And see, what if this was all about, hey, I'm not going to think about myself. I'm actually going to look past any hurt that you cause in my life, and I'm going to extend mercy and grace and love in your life because that's what he's done in my life. And the whole world is to know about that in your life. Or maybe if I can say it simply, they are to see Jesus in your life. They should be overwhelmed by the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus that's coming out of your life. Now, <clears throat> at the very end of verse 5, Paul gives this phenomenal statement that becomes almost the bridge or the linchpin of this entire passage. So again, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Verse 5, hey, don't demand your own rights. Look past the offense and just show mercy, love, and grace. Why or how can I do all of that? Paul says, the Lord is near. 
Now that phrase, the Lord is near, again, it becomes a bridge. It becomes like a capstone for this entire passage. Because when you get into verse 6, which we're going to look at on Thursday, but when you look at verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving offer your, your request to God. The only way you can do that is because the Lord is near. So whether you're looking at verses 4 and 5 or whether you're looking at verses 6, verses 6 and 7, the Lord is near becomes the thrust, the anchor to that entire passage. Did you know that the Lord is near? Obviously not, because you'd be standing up and cheering if you knew that. Hey, the Lord is near, folks. Uh, There's two ideas in the passage with this idea the Lord is near. And again, this is all just review, but... There's this idea of the fact that he is coming soon. Yeah, I mean, we, we are, have you ever thought about this? We are closer to the return of Jesus now than any, any other time in human history. I mean, I know that's obvious. You know? <laughs> Today, we are one day closer to his return than we've ever been in human history. And tomorrow, we're going to be one, one more day closer. But folks, it is getting closer And though, hey, we may not know the day or the hour, I understand it's getting closer. And it seems like things are coming to a head. And things are, I mean, they're just, things are ramping up unlike ever before. And it's like we're on the verge of something. But for 2,000 years, the the spirit and the bride, the church, has had a prayer, a longing deep within its very being that says, come, Lord Jesus, come, 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 Lord Jesus, come. By the way, do you pray that? Because you're a part of the bride if you're a Christian. And there should be just this constant echo of, oh, Lord, we want you. Oh, we need you. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha, come, Jesus, come, come, come. Is there an ache in your life to see Jesus? I mean, is there just a burn in your very being that just says, oh, Lord, I can't wait? Because if there's not, I would say, hey, you don't understand what it means for the Lord to return. The Lord returning returning is not a, oh, bummer, I I don't get to do all the things I wanted to do. Oh, bummer, I'm not married. Lord, could you wait a few more years? See, that's, you're missing the idea of the Lord's return. If you really, in fact, the whole New Testament, the idea of the Lord's return was this, oh, I'm just so excited. I just, I just can't wait. I can't wait. Maybe it's today. Maybe it's today. I just can't wait. I just, oh, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Now, for 2,000 years, the, the Spirit and the Bride has had that prayer. Oh, come, come. But you realize we are getting close. And whether he returns in our lifetime actually doesn't matter. The fact is, he is coming close. He is near. And it's a time idea. Uh, but the other idea in the passage is not just the idea of time, the fact that, he's, hey, he's returning soon. There's this idea that it's proximity. It's the fact that he actually is near. You realize that at Pentecost, the outside God has come to be on the inside. The Lord has drawn near. Do you know the only option you have to rejoice always? How are you going to pull that off outside of Jesus? You can't. How on earth are you going to show gentleness to the world around you without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in your life? You can't. So what do you need? You need the presence of the Lord in your life. And the fact that the Lord has drawn near enables you to rejoice always. The fact that he has drawn near enables you to be gentle. The fact that he's drawn near allows you to never be anxious, never to have fear in your life. Why? He's drawn near. Do you realize in your life that he is near? Near, by the way, doesn't mean he's like right here. 
It doesn't even mean he's like, well, he's just, you know, down the road about two miles to the right. Yeah, he's over there. He's, he's nearby. That's not, this is like he's pressing in upon you. This is like he's, he's invading your space. Th- this idea is, folks, he lives inside of your life if you're a Christian. But the Spirit of God has come to indwell your life. He is near. And now he wants to take his life and begin to exhibit it through you. So you can rejoice always. You can walk in gentleness. Why? He has drawn near. Can I ask you, does this describe your life? If you were to do an honest assessment of your life, would you say, Woo, I rejoice always? Or would you have to admit, like most of us, sometimes, rarely, when I squint? Hey, if we were to ask the people in your world, hey, just describe you. Would the, would the description that comes back be like, wow, they are full of joy, and wow, they are so gentle. I don't mean gentle like, oh, they're so gentle. I mean gentle like they, they just go over and above, and they're constantly just pouring their life out. And I have hurt them so many times, and what do they keep doing? They keep going after me, and they... They keep showing mercy, and they keep showing grace, and they keep showing love, and they keep showing forgiveness. It's just like they can't help themselves. Is that true in your life? If not, could it be that we don't really know that the Lord is near? Could it be that we haven't fully embraced him like we need to? Could it be that, that maybe we need to freshly get on our faces and just say, Jesus, would you... Would you do something in my life that I can't do in and of myself? Because I can't bring this about by talent. I I can't whip up this out of just strength or willpower. That this has to be a movement of God upon my life to bring this about. Do you need that? And if so, would you come to Jesus this morning and would you just say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I'm craving you. I just, my life isn't as it should be. Lord, I want to rejoice always. I want this world to know who you are when they see my life, that just somehow your life is pressing itself out through my life and the world knows your gentleness because they experience it through my life. Does this describe your life? Pray with me. Uh, Lord, Lord, I am so convicted about this passage. Because, Lord, truth be told, there there are moments in my day where I allow frustration to get a hold of me rather than joy. That, Lord, there's there's those individuals that just, oh, they just irk me. They just, oh, they just drive me up a wall. But, Lord, rather than allowing them to see my gentleness, I allow them to see frustration. Lord, I've been really good at hiding Lord, I've been really good at just showcasing a smile on the outside, but being frustrated on the inside. Lord, that's not gentleness. Lord, what would it look like if you, because you are near, did something so radical in my life that it wasn't like I'm displaying gentleness and inwardly having this distortion of living. It's, I just couldn't help myself. I just... 
I saw someone that normally frustrates me and just irks me, and I just, I'm so filled with love for the individual that I'm willing to overlook all that they do and show mercy and grace because that's what you've done in my life. Lord, I have no option outside of you to pull this off. So Lord, I, I surrender my rights. Lord, Lord, I surrender my agenda. Lord, Lord I surrender my comfort. Lord, Lord I, I surrender. I surrender all. And Lord, I, I, I ask that even this day that, that you would that you would be my fullness of joy. That, Lord, that somehow the, in the pressures of living and, and, all, and all the pressures of life and, and all, all the circumstances of living, Lord, somehow all the pressure would only allow me to leap and go further and higher up. Lord, I, I, when the world looks upon my life, I want them to see the joy of the Lord because you are the fullness of joy. And if I'm in you and you are in me, then, man, that joy should be oozing out of every pore of my body. And Lord, whatever it's going to take to pull off gentleness in my life, Lord, I just, Lord, I, I desperately need you to do this in my life. Lord, I, I don't want to hold offense. Lord, I, I don't want to be full of bitterness or frustration. Lord, I, I don't even want to allow there to be a ruffle of feathers from any single person in the world. Lord, somehow could you and I just get so tight, so just locked in together, so intimate that that when someone comes that has always frustrated me, I don't see them through my own perspective. I don't see them through my selfishness. I don't see them through my comfort. I, I see them through the lens of Jesus. And through the lens of Jesus, I am so overwhelmed with a concern for the individual that no matter what they say, no matter how they may hurt, no matter what they may do to frustrate me, that I'd be willing to overlook all of that and extend mercy and love and grace and kindness and that the world will be captured and captiva captivated by the gentleness that you are producing in and through my life. Lord, thank you that we've experienced your gentleness. That you didn't demand rights and justice. And just send us off to hell for eternity. Instead, you saw our need. And gave us everything we needed for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. Lord, remind us that you are near, not just in terms of time, but in terms of presence. Oh, what an amazing reality, Jesus, that we don't have to live like the world around us, that we can have joy and gentleness and hope and love and peace because we have you. And Lord, I just pray for everybody in this room or those who are listening. Lord, if, if there's something in our lives that has to be changed, if there's anything in our lives that has to go, if there's anything we need to surrender, Lord, if this passage does not define us, then Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction in any and every area of our life, that you would put your finger upon it and just say, can I, can I have that? And would you bring about the transformation that you so desperately want to produce in our lives? Mm. We need you, Jesus. We love you. Just give you the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name. Amen.